Hey, I'm Michael Duranda. And I'm Jake Bennett. And welcome to episode one of Northern Meet Southern, where we will talk about the app that we're building, then call me maybe. Chicka chicka chenna. We should have gotten a different intro. <laughs> I mean, we still can. Oh my gosh. We I should edit we it did. in. We did get a different intro, folks. Welcome to episode one of Northern Meets Northern Meets Southern. This is a brand new podcast. Uh, and for those of you who is going to be almost all of you who are completely uninformed what we're talking about because nobody follows this guy anyway. Um, Mr. Ninja. Sorry. Yes, I had to. Ninja Parade. Uh, yes, Jalad announced on Twitter uh, February 5th, which would have been yesterday. Quote, I'm excited to announce that the Danny Ferg and I will be starting a podcast called Northern Meets Southern, where we will be discussing the app Daniel and I are building called Then Call Me Maybe. So uh, this is our this is our response. Uh, Got to have a little bit of fun, you know. And so uh, I just I just like that, that Yaz that Yaz is always just thinking of this random stuff and just sending it out there into totally. the world. Yeah, like he just like, randomly. Like there was no. I mean, he's only had 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 the conversation with me. So it's it's just been rattling around in his head, and he's just gone. I got nothing to do. I'll just tweet this out. Did you see the? You see like his uh, his header graphic on Twitter? No, he, it's got a picture of Aaron Francis, and it says best friend, <laughs> and then it has him xed out, his face xed out. <laughs> what the heck? Oh my gosh, the the insane rants of a madman. Like he literally is just so funny. Oh my word. Uh, and it's funny thing is a lot He's of people, and this is like you know, many of the people who probably are following him now have never met him, so they don't know no. that he literally is ninety nine percent of the time he is just completely not serious about anything. I'd I'd, uh, I I'd like to clarify that he he himself is not a joke, but he has lots of jokes and he's very funny and I love him he's dearly. He's a great guy. A I got I really enjoyed hanging out with him last time we were in New York uh, for Laracon. Yeah, really good dude. We went and had some drinks on a rooftop bar it was really it was really great just to kind of chat with him and get to know him a little bit so yeah really really cool dude i'm mm-hmm. excited to see him again at laracon this year hopefully he'll be there i'm sure he will and uh yeah you won't see him that's the big joke right it's like uh he'll be in pictures like eric, eric barnes will like have his arm out around nobody and it'll be like mm-hmm. just got my picture mm-hmm. with eric barnes it's great it's good times <laughs> Good times. Well, everybody, welcome to North Meets South. This is the real, the real deal. Uh, episode one thirty three, I believe, is what we were on. So, um, you know, we like to talk about all sorts of randomness, random stuff here. And I've got a couple cool things to talk about today. If you uh, let's do it. If you want to, okay, let's do so, it. Because I'm, I'm, I'm brain fried from work. So okay. easier if you just come up with stuff, and I will. Yeah, yeah. I actually. So the thing, the thing that I have here is, if you've not listened to. No Compromises. Uh, this is a podcast by Joel and I always... It's Joel and Eric, I think, right? Aaron. Aaron. Aaron, dang it. Every time. I mess up his name every time. And Joel's like, he's going to hate you when he finally meets you. He's going to hate your guts. And uh, anyway, sorry, Aaron. Joel and Aaron. Anyway, really good dudes. And uh, the last episode, or one of the episodes, it was like going on a bug hunt is is what their their episode title was. And... Joel was talking about this situation where they were trying to test that the CSV was coming through um, and they were they were only accepting CSVs or something like that. So they were checking to make sure that their validation rule worked, that it was only validating with a CSV and the tests kept on failing, but it was passing and then it was failing. It was like if he uploaded it from the browser, it would work. But if he uploaded it, like if he did it in the test, it wouldn't. So anyway, 
I thought he was going to arrive at the same conclusion that we eventually arrived at uh, for this bug that I'm going to talk about, but he did not. His conclusion was that in order for something to be seen as a valid CSV, it needed to have at least three lines, I think is what it was, at least three lines of data. And so in their little test fixture that they were using, they only had two, I think. And so that was sort of the conclusion that he came away with. So in a recent foray into the world of computing, uh, we had a similar problem where we were dealing with some CSV stuff. So I wanted to share that. So the first thing I want to talk about is this really interesting MySQL command called uh, load data. Have you ever heard of this? Have you ever used this before? Yeah, I've heard of it. Okay, so this, so, is, this is how your GUIs usually work. Oh, is it? They use like, Please explain. <clears throat> if you upload a CSV, it's not It's not like parsing that CSV and converting it oh, to okay. SQL. It's using, it'll parse out the headers usually so that you okay. can map Sure. The sure. columns to the right place in your database, but it, when you when you actually run it, it'll do a load data in file. Uh huh. Yeah, load data in file. Exactly mm-hmm. right. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so the cool thing about load data and load data, load data, tomato, tomato, in file is that it's extremely fast. It's really, really, really fast. So you can chuck a ton of data into a database really, really fast. So I don't remember the exact metrics, but what we needed to be able to do is we wanted to be able to load like you know, 1.8 million records into a database, database. And uh, it would have previously taken quite a bit of time. And we were able to do that in seconds, right? It would just chuck it in there and it was super fast. So really great. And there's actually a really good library for this as well. I don't remember the name of it. I will try and find it and throw it in the show notes. It works with Laravel. So you basically just put it onto a eloquent model. And then you say, I want to have, you know, I want to implement this I think I can't remember if you implement an interface or if you use something, I think maybe both. And then what you do is you just create this little method that says, I want to load data from this location. It's going to be, each line is going to be terminated by this particular thing. And uh, each piece of data is going to be enclosed by this type of thing. So typically that's like enclosed by double quotes and terminated by line return, right? And then you can optionally pass in a set of columns that you want to load them into. So like if you have column one, column two, column three, column four, you name them whatever you want. Uh, It doesn't really matter. But then you can say, I want to load location one into this column in my database and location two into this column in my database. So the, the rows, the column headers don't have to match up exactly with what your database is. You can basically say, give me whatever you want. As long as it's in the correct order, I'm going to put it into these locations in my database, right? So that's kind of that's kind of the gist. That's how it works. And it works amazingly. It works really good. The only trick is kind of getting the file where you need it to be. So you can do the load data in file because it has to be somewhere local. So you have to put it into some local storage location and then you can ingest that, pop it into your database, then delete it and you're all good. Everybody's happy. Really, really good way to load in lots of data really quickly. So um, what we did is we had a file that was getting created in this legacy system of record that we had. And it was getting created and popped out into this location. And our developer downloaded it and pushed it into his repo as a fixture and um, ran his tests. Everything worked great. Everything worked swimmingly. It was using the fixture locally to you know, put it in the right place and then load it in and it all worked fine and dandy. Well, when we pushed it up, um, it started failing. All the all the integration, all the unit tests that were dealing with this particular test would not pass in GitHub, and we could not figure out why. So I pulled it down. Also, didn't work for me locally, but for the original developer who created it, it worked every time. 
So we were bashing our heads against the wall on this one. And it was so frustrating to try and figure out why does it work for him, but for nobody else. So do you want to take any stabs at what you think it might have been? Was that developer on Windows by any chance? (gasps) Ooh, Michael. No, he was not. He was on a Mac. (laughs) But... This is, your sniffer, this is something that I mean. Your sniffer is on the right trail. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, elaborate for me. This, this is something that we've been battling at work as well. Not specific to CSV, but specific to differences between Windows and Linux and Mac. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So talk with to the me line, about this. The, the, the line endings are different. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. The line endings are different. Indeed, they are. So what are what is the mm-hmm. line ending? Help me out here. So the line ending, there's basically two common ones. There's a line feed, which is like a slash n, and then there's a carriage return line feed, which is a slash r slash n. Yes. So let me let me give you a quick. Can I give you a quick history lesson on this? Go on. Go okay. On. Go, go, so go. when typewriters were created, right? So you you have a typewriter, chick 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 chick. You're doing your thing, and there is when you get to the end of a line, there are two things that simultaneously need to happen in order to start writing onto the next line. There is a carriage return, which would rotate the the cylinder that is holding the paper. A carriage return would, uh, I'm sorry, a line feed would would rotate that cylinder, right? And then a carriage return would take that, when when you hear that, that sound, that sound of, you know, you know, you hear the song before, that is the line feed carriage return. It's both. It's slash R carriage return slash n line feed so it's the two together so slash r slash n stands for those two things together but when they were converting that slash r slash n to a format that would be used on digital media right Mm -hmm. back in the days when bits and bytes were flowing over the wire and it really mattered how many bits and bytes you had because the speeds were so slow they decided to say, you know what? We don't actually need both of those things to represent a new line. We don't, we're never going to just do one or just the other. Like yeah. we just, let's just use slash N to represent, this is a new line now. We don't need slash R and slash N. Mm-hmm. So any Nix based, you know, Linux, Unix, whatever, Max, which so kind of run on, on that as well. They all use slash N. That's sort of the standard. But Windows machines still use slash R slash N to represent these these carriage right. carriage return line feed CRLF. Yeah. So if you're talking about CRLF, that's that slash R slash N line ending line ending yeah. on the end of all those files. Right. Yeah. And so, not like I said, not with the CSV specifically, but we've been having the same issue because we've got some of our developers on Windows. I'm on a Mac. My team here is in a Mac on Macs, and so we would push stuff up. We'd run cs fixer it would be fine people would write code on their end they'd run cs fixer and they'd get all these changes but they push it up and there's nothing or vice versa there'd be like errors in in ci but there'd be nothing locally because windows when it runs cs fixer or where when it runs laravel pin it uses the line returns as defined by the environment so the way that we got around this in our specific scenario was to set in git git attributes um, you can set like four text files. So basically everything in a code repository, you can set the line feed using the Git attributes. Um, we, we first stumbled upon this with like snapshot testing. So using the sparsy snapshot assertions, PHP unit snapshot assertions package so that we can like 
generate JSON payloads, for example, save a snapshot of that so that we can assert against it. So the next time we run it, we make sure that we haven't changed the structure of the you know, underlying object that gets converted to JSON. And we'd be running into issues there where like the developers would push stuff up because they'd made, they'd updated the snapshot, they'd push it up, then they would get failures because obviously GitHub Actions runs um, by default Linux and they've pushed up these CRLFs the slash r slash n and it's it's using that library uses a php underscore eol constant which uses the end of line for whatever operating system is running so we went ran into conflicts there so the way that we got around that was to to set that um end of line equals lf in the dot git attributes file and that solved that your your scenario you know it would have to be a little bit more hard coding i would imagine well, so, so you said, did you say that in your Git attributes, what was what was your solution? You said all text files should end with what? What should the what should the line? It's EOL equals LF, which is like so. This means that even if a developer tried to commit a new file to the repository that had mm-hmm. a slash r slash yes. n, when they commit it, mm-hmm. Git would re would then rewrite that to a line feed, and you can use things like um, editor config and things like that to make sure that all of that stuff is set at the repository level as well. Which I think they have changed. I saw when I went looking for the solution, I'm pretty sure in the Laravel 10 skeleton. I don't know if it's in the Laravel 9 skeleton, but it's been changed in the Laravel 10 skeleton. So it's going to use the line feed for end of line for all text files in a repository by default. So that should hopefully mitigate against this. Because the, the, there were issues on um, on the snapshot assertions issues thing. There were um, issues on Pint. There was issues somewhere else I saw as well. So it's it's like... It's not an uncommon thing, but it is an obscure thing if you don't know what you're looking for. Because when you when you open this file, like you open this file, the CSV in PHP Storm or Vim or whatever, and it looks fine, and they open up, you know, your other developer opened it in their editor, VS Code, whatever, and it all looks the same. But unless you're paying attention to the the line feed like information in in the editor, you wouldn't pick it up, and it's not really obvious from from your test, it would just say like, this thing doesn't match this thing. And then you go, well, I don't know. You can't tell. You don't know. Yeah. And so I'm not sure if it's Git or if it's GitHub that by default converts endings, line endings to line feed. It tells you when you're about to push them up, by the way, it'll say, Hey, by the way, if you're going to be pushing these up, we're going to convert all of these things automatically to just, you know, a single, you know, slash N. It does tell you that, which is great. That's fine. So by default, that's what it's going to do. The issue that we had is that when you are when you are using load data, you have to specify what ends the line, and you can't use you you want you have to use slash r slash n mm-hmm. in the specific situation that we're talking about. And the reason why is because in the production environment, the file that's going to be coming out that we are going to be reading is slash r slash n has to be it's going to be that's what it's yeah, going to be that's what's going to be in production so you have two options here that's what's going to be in production so you have two options you could either read that file in and convert all the line endings to slash n and then say okay we're going to use slash n for our you know for our uh, load data specify every line is terminated by slash n you could do that but for me that sort of negated the whole purpose like i'm trying to get this thing in there really fast i just want to read in the raw text file and just chuck it in there right so I don't want to do that. I don't want to go through and replace all the line endings in my in my right. code. I don't want to have to deal with that. I just want to use slash r slash n. The problem was every single time I'd push up to GitHub, 
it's converting that slash r slash n to slash n. So all of my tests are failing because all of my fixtures are getting updated to say, nope, it's slash n on purpose. Like that is the default and that's how it's supposed to be to provide, you know, to basically get around all these problems that you're talking about, yeah. which is like, stop putting slash r slash n everywhere. Agree on one format and just stop doing that. Okay, so it works the other way as well. What you're talking about in your Git attributes, you can then specify this one file particular, this, this path over here or anything in fixtures. You can say, I want it to be slash r slash n always, every time. If it's not slash r slash n, convert it to slash mm-hmm. r slash n before you push it up. So any person who's getting it back down, any person who's pushing it up, it's going to take that fixture file. It's going to convert it to have the line endings that we're expecting that are going to be in production. And it's going to use those mm-hmm. in the GitHub repo, which is really handy because originally my my developers were like, oh, well, we'll just convert everything and change it to slash. And okay, there's the tests pass. I'm like, okay, great. The tests pass, but that's not going to work in production. Yeah. So like, I'm glad the tests are passing, but that's not what the goal of the test is. The goal of the test is to say, is it going to actually work in production? So we need to mirror what's going to be in production and then get that to pass. Mm-hmm. So that's what we did. So we put in get attributes, we put a, uh, you know, this fixture in particular needs to have slash r slash n line endings. And then we left slash r slash n for the um, terminated lines in the load data stuff. Mm-hmm. And it all was happy and everything worked great, but it took forever to get there. Oh my word, it was so frustrating. Yeah. And then, it was funny because we needed to do it again for a different test and we put a different fixture up there with another name and ran into the same problem. And it probably took us another 10 minutes. I'm like, dang it, what is the problem? I was like, oh, that's right. We forgot to add that file to the get attributes to say, uh, you know, hey, stop doing that. Right. That's right. So I believe it's, you know, it's dot get attributes is the mm-hmm. is the uh the file that you're that you're looking for. Uh and there's all sorts of stuff like configuring Git to handle line endings. If you if you Google like GitHub line endings, whatever uh, it has, it has all this stuff. You know, so you have uh, global settings for line endings, so you can put it in your uh, Git config, your global Git config on your on your machine. You can have per repository settings. Um, you can refresh a repository after changing the line endings. So you can you know say run over all the files after I change my Git attributes file and go ahead and apply these changes to everything. So there's some really good documentation around this. But if you've run into a similar problem before, you know, I feel your pain. It took us for a while to figure it out, but I was glad we did after yeah. after the uh, after the period of time. And and uh, Luke Bouch, one of our developers, he was like, "We you need to talk about this on North Meet South." So I was like, "Okay, we will." Yeah, it's we will do so. It's definitely one of those things that like it's obscure enough that you won't run into it often, and and when you do, it's going to be like a real head scratcher because it's not like line endings. You don't really think about it's not so like most people are always on the same operating system, so it doesn't matter. Um, but when you've got like multi-platform teams and things like that it's these things will come up and like my initial reaction was yeah. well we're targeting linux productions linux ci's linux correct yeah yeah we're gonna that's the right choice. like yeah okay you're on windows you can get into these conversations i think about like making it work for everyone i think you know you're gonna run into issues there and you're just gonna be scratching your head because like you're gonna convert it to line feeds and it's gonna go across the thing and then it'll be see how you know it'll be carriage return line feed and this is like a, a problem that Docker was kind of made to solve. If everything's in the Docker container, then everyone is always on the same environment, whether local or staging or production or wherever. True. And so you don't yeah. run into these issues, but you know, Git provides you these tools. Um, you know, we'd solve this issue for those snapshots specifically where we said that anything that was in like slash test slash asterisk asterisk slash underscore underscore snapshots 
you know, those would always be um, EO, EOL equals LF, but we just ended up changing it for everything because we were running into then issues with CS fix. And like the last thing you need is for someone to push code up and then blow up the whole CI pipeline because there's a mismatch in line endings, which which is something that you can solve. Um, so yeah, always, Dude. I think the takeaway there is to, to always optimize towards production, really. Hey, uh, I'm interested to talk about the snapshot testing with PHP unit. I'm interested to kind of hear how you guys are using that. Mm-hmm. So uh, you want to take a couple minutes and talk to me about that? Yeah. So we actually, Jack Ellis messaged me the other day and was like, I just found this article that, uh, that you wrote on your website a while ago, which was, which was around using like static fixture data. And I, we wrote about that as part of then ping me that we were using, you know, the fixtures to make sure that like, given we get this payload from Stripe, we ingest it in a certain way. And then like that ends up in, in the code, in the application in a certain way. So fixtures, fixtures are for like, when you're statically putting things together, they're like, every time I receive this, this is the output that I expect back out of it. Snapshots are more around dynamically generated content that shouldn't change. So this is more for outputs. You know, when I hit this API endpoint, this is the response I expect back. And there's certain scenarios where that works and certain scenarios where it doesn't. For example, if you're hitting a dynamic endpoint where an ID changes, then the snapshot's not going to really be very useful because the ID will be different every time you run the test. But for, for example, we're using it for DTO serialization assertions. So we are integrating with lender APIs. We have a DTO that like builds up the structure and given certain inputs, you know, first name, last name, middle name, address, all that kind of stuff, given that the same inputs, the outputs should always be the same. So rather than in our tests doing like using a factory to create a a person record and then doing like passing the person into the DTO, then calling to array and then saying this asserts same, you know, Jake comma dollar DTO arrow first underscore name you know, for however many fields, there could be five, there could be 20, there could be 30, who knows how big these objects are. Rather than doing that, the package allows us to basically go like this assert snapshot equals, I think it is. I think that's the assertion. And so basically... Assert matches JSON snapshot. Assert matches JSON snapshot, right. So you basically take that DTO, you throw it into this assert matches JSON snapshot, you could call dollar DTO arrow to array, and that's the end of the test. The first time you run it, it will, you know, it will realize that it doesn't have a snapshot. It will take a snapshot of that that result. It will save it in a file. So that the second time you run it, it will go, I've got this snapshot. Let me compare your output from this call to the snapshot and make sure that they're exactly the same. And it does it with JSON or you can do it for YAML. So you could just pass an entire object in there to make sure that the object has the same shape at all times. And it's just like a really quick and easy way to validate the structure and the content without having to go through line by line, property by property to make sure that, you know, first name is Jake, last name is Bennett, you know, city is normal, Illinois, whatever, um, all of that kind of stuff. And and so we use this. Easy, buddy, easy. Giving away my personal info here. How much more? How much more? (laughs) His phone number is 555. It's like a smoke test, right? So like somebody, you know... um, uh, Nuno was tweeting this the other day. He's like, hey, if you want a quick smoke test on like uh, your site, just say, you know, this, assert, okay, basically. And then it was like, pass it a bunch of different routes. And it'll just check to make sure that they hit 200s and come back, right? right? Yeah. It's the same idea, right? So essentially, you're, you're 
in your browser or in your DD or whatever you're doing, you're sort of constructing your object. And once you get happy with it, you're like, okay, yeah, this is generally sort of what I want it to look like. So now it's like, okay, I have my object. I know what it's going to look like. And I don't want to actually write all this stuff. So I'm just going to just snapshot it and say like, if it ever changes, let somebody know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's a good way to do it. And it's, and it's like that high level kind of, you know, Adam always talked about this outside in testing. It's a very high level, very outside kind of test. You would still later go in, and certainly we do, you go in later and then add tests around specific behaviors around, sure. you know, like, if, if yep, we're yeah. deriving. If I'm, if I'm converting like, if, I, if I'm converting a last name, first name to like a, you know, last name, comma, first name, and I'm, I'm splitting that out into a first name, last name thing. I need to make sure that that works for the for that situation or for like the name of a business yeah. that doesn't have a comma in it yeah. or something like that, right? Or like a, another good example is like display name. You know, we will we have this person object that has a title or salutation, first name, middle name, last name. And then we'd have a method on that object that's display name, which returns a string, which concatenates all those together. And so we would write then test for that behavior because we might sometimes use exactly. the display yeah. name. But broadly speaking, we want to know that the object is what we expect it to be. And this is really mm-hmm. useful then mm-hmm. for making sure that we don't accidentally change the structure of the object, which can then you know lead to cascading failure down the, down the line when we submit to the API, when we're building a, a request to then go to the API. Like we can have that level of assurance at the, you know, on the individual DTO level that the structure and content hasn't changed based on anything that we've done. And so those are really useful, really quick tests as well. Because it's just like comparing this array with this decoded array out of a file, you know, the JSON file somewhere. And so they run, you know, in milliseconds, tens of milliseconds. Um, and they give you like that really quick feedback loop to make sure that like when you're changing the, the object, you haven't broken anything uh, down the line. So they're, um, yeah, really, yep. really useful yeah, tool. Um, I'll see if I can find, I know that Freik has spoken about it. I'll see if I can find if it was like a public talk, if it was part of one of, one of his... Um, courses or anything like that but he's he's definitely spoken about those things previously yeah he's got Laricon online Sebastian maybe has I'm looking to see he's got like a blog post about it i've got the uh repo pulled up he might also have a test for, or you know a test for a talk yeah for it. like and we're, we're talking about these yeah. huge financial objects that are like yeah we can have a test that's dozens of lines long that goes through every single field on the th- on the object and make sure that they're, they're what we expect it to be. But I think that explicitness is like wasted time in the terms of a test when you can use the snapshot to, to give you the exact same assurance without having to go into the detail, you know, line by line of doing this. And that way your test goes from being like 50 lines to maybe 10 lines or less, but you're still, you know, you're still confident that that the structure of that thing is always going to be the same. Yes, indeed. Yep. That makes sense. Makes good sense. I like it. Okay, might have to start using some of that. Mm. That's that's pretty cool. And then you can also send in an update snapshots flag, which will then basically go through and say, okay, we we understand we made some changes here. That's fine. Right. I don't want to have to manually go up and clean up everything. I I you know I I would just like to update snapshots, yep. all of them. Yep. So you just pass dash dash update snapshots, and uh, there you go. Yep. It'll it'll go ahead and delete all the old ones and say, go ahead and update. Yeah. So, and, and that's, you know, the snapshots are not set in stone of over time. You might change the structure. You may need to add a new field or remove a field that's, that's been deprecated in that object, whatever. Then yeah, the, the test will fail. It'll tell you, Hey, we expected this, but we got this. And then you go, yep, I know, you know, and run the update. So 
uh, it does does protect you from inadvertent foot guns. Foot guns. Tell me about foot, foot guns. Foot guns. It's where you point a gun at your foot and shoot yourself in the foot. We just say shoot yourself in yeah. the foot. Yeah, foot gun. We well, you haven't shot yourself in the foot yet, but you've got a foot gun. You've got it trained on your foot and you're ready oh, to go. Okay, okay. It saves you from foot guns. Okay. I gotcha. I gotcha. All right, cool. Yeah, let's check that out. All right, I'm trying to think of anything else interesting we've been working on. Boy, we we just recently restructured a whole bunch of our code that was interacting with the SOAP API, Ugh. and we are using... Yes, yes, not fun. Uh, Luke Downing has a SOAP package that he created that we are using. Tell me about it, because so I'm going to have to interact with a SOAP API soon. I thought I was free of it having left Telco, but apparently finance likes SOAP APIs too. Yeah, they do. They absolutely do. And so... You know, a lot of it, I feel like really does depend on the quality of the SOAP API that you're dealing with. It's probably similar to all the REST stuff. I mean, like you can have a REST API that's an absolute freaking disaster if the documentation is crap or if it's really unreliable or whatever. It doesn't matter if it's REST. It doesn't always make it like amazing to work with either, right? So this SOAP API that we're dealing with is actually pretty okay. It's not that bad. Mm -hmm. Um, The documentation is solid. You know, you can go look at they've got a, both a PDF that expo- sort of explains things. And then they've just got their like their WSDL out there, their WSDL document, which then if you take the, if you take off this question mark WSDL at the end, it, it basically just has a bunch of API documentation out there for you. Like here's the expected request. Here's the response that you could get, expect to get all that good stuff. So yeah, it's, I don't know. We've talked about it on Laravel news before, but it's Luke Downing soap package. And basically what it allows you to do is it allows you to use soap fake so it what it does actually, I guess, is you can say soap two, and then you specify the endpoint that you're passing it to, I believe, and then you have. I mean, I'm gonna have to go look at it. I I forgot already. Rick Rocks yeah, Rick digital. Rocks digital. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Uh, so you say soap, and then we don't use the headers thing two, and then you have the endpoint that's going to be accessed, and then you have the different functions, right? So. You can you can say functions and get all the different functions that are available. But then once you know what the different functions are, you just say call. You pass in the function that you're wanting to call. And then you pass in after that an array of data that you want converted to XML. So you think of like how with uh, Spassy, they will take a XML response and convert it to an array for you. Mm-hmm. Right. And basically they set the keys equal to whatever is in the, you know, the tag of the XML and then the value equal to whatever's in the, you know, what's whatever's inside of those tags. Basically, this does the opposite of that. It takes an array in and then will convert that to XML for you, does this whole soap envelope thing for you, wraps it up in the soap envelope, then kicks it over to that soap endpoint. And then it will take the response, uh, convert it back into an array for you, and then give it back to you, which is really nice. Uh, but the things that you can do with it as well is you can call like soap fake and then you could say I'm going to, uh, you know, it should hit this location and I should be passing this array of data and I should get back this array of data, which makes it really nice uh, for doing testing, right? Mm-hmm. Because soap testing can be really painful. So this just puts a really nice boundary between your application and the soap endpoint and makes it really, really nice to be able to test against those um, it also has some things like you can have these global before and after hooks. So what it allows us to do is we can say, I want to log out all of the XML that I'm going to be sending over the wire. And I want you to go put it in this location for me, this other, basically this other log file that isn't 
isn't thrown to like our paper trail location. It's only logged on the server itself. So it's never going to, you know, get exposed because it, it might have might have some like some relatively sensitive data, nothing that would be like terrifying if it got out, but also not something I just want sitting out there in paper trail yeah. either. Uh, there's no requirement for us to log this information. It's just like debug information. So we just leave it locally on the server. And in that case, we get like some sentry exception. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I wonder what XML was getting thrown there. Yeah. What was what XML was coming back? We can go look at the full request and full response. And so we're using that after requesting hook to the after requesting hook actually gives you all of the stuff that that was sent that was re- returned any errors that happened and all that mm-hmm. and you can just kind of dump it all yeah, out nice. in your log file if you want just just yeah. on that yeah so it's it works good we um we have these like lender integrations that fail uh-huh. and we're we're only we're only storing the responses and the requests that we send and the responses that we get back mm-hmm. if we get a failure right so if okay. yeah, if sure. it's either 500 from the other end if it's a you know 400 that's a good idea actually um yeah because i wouldn't care to store all the successful ones either it's a good point or or um like if we get a success back but it had like you know some information in that we weren't expecting right something that we didn't know what to do with but you say you don't want to store the successful ones i think there's still a use case for storing the successful ones because sometimes our process succeeds but the other end like they've sent us a request, the payload has otherwise parsed successfully, but it's been missing data. So they've sent us like a whole bunch of stuff, but they missed out a couple of objects. Now from us, it's like, oh, something's broken because the application's there, but it's missing these fields. What did we do? And so ah, okay. my question is... So like you're saying, I got you. Do, got you. do you find value in just like logging every single request in both directions, stuff that's coming in and going out, request, response, just in case you need it. And you could be like filling up S3 bucket somewhere. Not not that it's expensive, but you could be filling up these this S3 bucket with like lots of stuff that you never even look at. But like it's that it's always that one time that you'd like, damn, I wish I had it, but I, you know, to see yeah. did we stuff up in no, processing this or did they yeah. stuff up in sending it? That's definitely been true. I'll tell you that for sure. Because there's a couple of times where I've gotten a response that I would have expected would have been like, hey, this is this is, should be good. Mm. Like there shouldn't be a problem here. And what I discovered on one of them was that the response that they sent back, they spent, they, okay, it was like, I'm trying to remember how they do it. They send back, they always send back an error response on every, on every single request. Always. Right. And if the error response is empty or if the error response is like code 1000, that means that the error response was, you know, was fine. There was no error response, right? Sort of deal, which is goofy. But in one case, there was error response and it was a 1000, but there was a second response inside of the error response. There was like multiple errors. So like the first one was 1000 and the second one was like 1005. And so it looked like, hey, it passed because we're checking for that every time. If it, if there's not a response that's equal to 1,000, then something went wrong. But there was a response that was equal to 1,000. So we said, it passed. It's all good. Go through. And then, yeah, it failed. And we're like, what happened? And then we were able to go in and look and see, oh, there was more than one response on that yeah. thing. Well, that's not anywhere in their documentation that that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. right? We had no clue until it happened. Yeah. And that would be completely invisible. And it's like, those are the always that weird edge cases where it's like, well, good luck trying to reproduce that. Yeah. You have no idea what happened. You're completely blind. Yeah. And I guess the only other thing for us is we are rotating those logs out. Like, I think we keep like a week of logs. It's It's pretty like... 
if there's an error like that, we're going to notice it relatively quickly and we'll be able to get at it within seven days, you know? Yeah. So we're going to go be able to see that. And then we don't have to have the risk of like a bunch of exposure out there with data that we'd rather not be keeping around, but we have enough to debug, yeah. debug stuff. So yeah, I, I, we keep it all we keep requests you know good and bad yeah everything's out there yeah i think we're gonna we might start looking at at that just for like these scenarios because like we get the errors which is fine like the api docs say you know this has to be a string right but because we're using eloquent if the field is not Mm -hmm. filled it's null so then we send it to null because we're not casting it to a string and so then we get errors back that like the payload is otherwise fine but because we have this one field that has a null in it instead of an empty string we get an error and so we've yeah. we've got a piece of middleware that basically looks, is there an X request ID set, like a header? And this happens at the top of our middleware stack. If it if it doesn't exist, we'll we'll add, like we'll just generate a UUID and attach it as a header. If it does, then we'll use whatever's there. But then anytime we have these exceptions, we take that request ID, we take the failure, we encode the entire payload. And we throw it into S3 as like traces slash whatever the X request ID is so that we can always refer back to it. And then the error message gets logged out. So we've got a, you get in, in Laravel and in Monolog, which is the logging library that Laravel uses, you can create like a context mm-hmm. aware thing where you can like just tack on extra stuff. So we always tack on the current tenant, the request user, if someone is logged in and, and the trace ID if it's set. So we've got like, that is always in every log message so that we get the log message that says there was an error submitting to this lender. We got, and and it's got like the truncated exception, which sometimes gives us enough context to figure out what was wrong. And then we like take up that whole payload and we just like shove it into S3 and then someone, and then an email gets sent and then someone's like, hey, what happened here? And then we go and like do the dance of going to find it. But yeah, my, my question after all that discussion was like, would you store success and and failure and it sounds like that's that's what you're doing so yeah i think as long as you have like reasonable retention periods set and you're not just like chucking a whole bunch of data out there mm-hmm. to be found by some somebody hunting around looking for something yeah, yeah i think that's fine yeah i mean encrypting it means that i'm not too i don't have you know too many concerns about someone get like even if they breach the s3 bucket unless they also breach the app and then breach the database to get the encryption keys then i'm not too worried about that it's just about how how long mm-hmm. we do with that? And I suppose we can set up retention policies in S three. Well, to so say what like, we did too is we yeah you could do yeah you could do retention policies in S three for sure. I was gonna say what we did is we just created a separate logger, mm-hmm. right? We created a completely separate log channel that has its own retention stuff on it, so that it'll just handle rolling off. Yeah, and so it's not chucked in there with everything else either. So it's not like in in with all the other general error yeah. messages. Yeah. It's with it's all it's on its own. Yeah, it's we on still we still want the error message that says like this thing went wrong, and then we go and sure. file that away. But yeah, I think if we set up lifecycle hooks, like lifecycle policies on that S three bucket, like yeah, that, that's pretty easy to do now. I believe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, as far as I know, you have to go in and do it in the UI, which is a bit annoying because we have to do it for every tenant. Every time we create a tenant, we have to go and create the policies for the new one. Mm-hmm. But it means that you know, seven days or whatever which is probably enough because usually we we find out about the errors pretty much straight away. And then we can go back and, and deal with that. But yeah, every time, yeah. like we have this integration yeah. that like works, but every now and then the external party that uses that integration will break it like they did on Friday at like three o'clock. And so 
Of course. And so it's like, I didn't find out about it until Monday morning. But then it's like, oh, I don't know. Like, we haven't changed anything. So I, like, we just assume at this point that it's them that has broken it. <laughs> and it's, I, I can't verify that. I have to go and ask them, hey, can you see what you sent me to, like, and those kinds of questions are a bit annoying. So it's like, you know, it doesn't happen often. But when it does happen, I kind of wish that I had the the successful request just so I can see, oh, yeah, they, they didn't include this information in that payload at all. Yeah, it looks like you can use the AWS CLI uh, now to set expirations mm-hmm. on items on a per item basis you or use on a the bucket? SDK bucket on a bucket. Mm-hmm. Cool. I'm gonna have to look into that. Yeah, you can use the SDK. You can use the REST API. You can use the CLI. You can use the console. All, all different. All different. Nice. So I will nice. investigate. Good chat. Awesome. Productive. Okay. Chat. Well, I think we should wrap it up, eh? Yeah. Let's do it. Very Canadian of you. Episode one, you can find show notes uh, for episode one on northernmeetsouthern.audio slash one. Or if you're interested in this show, northmeetsouth.audio slash 133, I believe. Hit us up on Twitter at Michael Jordan at Jacob Bennett. If you like the show, feel free to rate us up and your podcatcher of choice five stars would be amazing. Thanks everybody so much for hanging out with us. We will see you next time. Adieu. Bye-bye. Maybe.